Coming up, what an excellent day for directing. Well, howdy, folks, and welcome to Minute 14 of The Exorcist Minute, a show where we endeavor to examine, extrapolate, and excavate The Exorcist minute by terrifying minute. My name is Lester Clark. And I'm Keenan Diaz. And I'm Andy Nelson. And we will be your holy guides on this journey through what some have called the scariest movie of all time. And yes, once again, folks, we have Andy Nelson with us. His voice might sound familiar if you listen to the Marvel Movie Minute show on the True Story FM network. Andy has also done an episode on The Exorcist in his other show, The Next Reel, and I highly recommend you go and check that out. Welcome back, Andy. Thank you so much. I'm thrilled to be here to talk more about The Exorcist. It is a delightful, delightful film to discuss. Like just good family fun. <laughs> just one for it's a four quadrant film if I've ever seen. It. Yes. <laughs> All right. So our minute begins with a shot of the rooftops of Georgetown University. Wait, 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 Keenan. Are are we sure that this is a university? Or I don't know. Maybe maybe it's a museum of antiquities. I mean, really, who can say? Sorry, sorry. I'm done. I promise. Um, and it ends with a group of students shouting. Actually, they are actors playing students. Actually, they are actors playing actors playing students. Dude, that is so meta. <laughs> and speaking of meta, uh, there's a lot of actors playing actors or actors playing directors or writer producers working as actors playing writer producers. <laughs> what is this minute? It's nuts. <laughs> it's such a, a fun minute setting up a sense of more about who Chris is. You know, we kind of saw her mm-hmm. home life and now we're really getting to see her at work in the field and um you know i'm sure i'm sure we'll talk a lot about uh about it but what i what i find so interesting about it that is really picking up on this time is just how ritualistic everything mm. in her particular job is it, oh, you know yes. and really in the industry as a whole like everybody has their own little rituals and we see a lot of that happening here yeah and this is one of the more accurate depictions of what acting is and the relationship with the director and all of that is um when we were making movies during the studio system during the 20s 30s 40s 50s um mm-hmm. we would have uh, a lot of movies about movies but they they gave people the exact wrong impressions of how an actor works and how a director works what i like about this minute is that it starts like a bad joke um i can hear someone presuming Presumably the uh, the AD shouting over the megaphones like, "Okay, I need a priest, a nun, and two students." Um, <laughs> and at first you're like, "What?" Uh, and then you realize, "Oh, they're shooting a movie." Um, right. Yeah. Uh, we get some uh, shots of lights, of cameras, and a whole lot of action as actors and extras and crew members are all bustling about, uh, getting ready to shoot the next scene in this film within a film. Yeah, we have a lot of uh, sound bridges, which is the um, you know some might call it a prelap if we're hearing the sound of the next scene over the. Pre- previous scene hmm. um that that are really uh disorienting we were talking about that that uh, sound of the plane when father Marin um goes away and then we get to georgetown and right. how it sort of leads yes. us into thinking all sorts of things like it was father Marin on a plane or what have you it's but this Pazuzu is one of on those, a plane yes yeah, yeah. on a plane this is one of the <laughs> that makes it yeah it's like oh it starts with this weird thing that sounds like a joke um and then in austin powers right austin powers when he um gets hit on the head or something he says i need an old priest and a young priest right yeah. <laughs> it sounds very similar to this sound bridge okay that's a word that i'm gonna put in my pocket oh yeah sound bridge um if you it, because of the way that nonlinear editing works now 
now, like when you're looking at your audio lines, um, some people call them um, L cuts, which is where the sound from the next scene comes in um, into the previous scene because you can kind of it, it's sort of an L if you hold up your um, your finger and thumb. And then mm-hmm. a J cut would be the opposite, where we are hearing the sound that is from the previous scene going into the next scene. Um, but that's the no- more modern te- uh, terminology for it. But yeah, a sound bridge has existed since the um, since the creation of sound in the twenties. God, I'm learning so many words now. It's like L cuts and J cuts and <laughs> sound bridges and pareidolia and oh, polymorphia yeah. and this is this is just an educational podcast um, <laughs> if ever I heard one. Um, so if you look closely in this scene, you might see a very special cameo in the form of William Peter Blatty himself, the author of the book. Here, and the screenplay. And the screenplay. And the screenplay. And the screenplay um, here playing the part of the producer. And again, he, he did produce this film. Um, not this film, but this film. Well, I guess, I guess this film too, right? Um, however, he is eclipsed by the grandiose acting of Jack, Mag- is it McGowan or McGowan? Oh, I don't really know how to pronounce Irish names. So it's oh, probably it's... something, probably something. Yeah. Okay. McGowan. Jack McGowan. Yeah. McGowan. Like um, uh, Saoirse Ronan when she, when she would have to introduce people, you know, to her name. She would say, yeah. um, you know, my name is Sersha like inertia. And she'd have to like come up with a little rhyme like that. So I don't know how McGowan, McGowan, like, 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 uh, McGowan. Uh, yeah. <laughs> like something. Yeah. <laughs> like yeah. something. <laughs> yeah. Irish friends can write us uh, in. Yes, please. Um, I'm tempted. I'm tempted to just say McGowan, but, uh, there's I think, that R I, think in there I think that... on the commentary, I think, uh, uh Friedkin says McGowan with. Uh, okay. All right. Okay. So he pronounces everything. Great. Yeah. Just, just as long as we're not At getting it. Friedkin like, does. like, <laughs> yeah. As long as we're not getting it like 100% right, like it's Mogorin or something like right. that. You'd be like, oh, my God. Or um, like Donald Gleeson, you know, like um, oh. <laughs> like Dom, Donald, Domna Donald. Hall Gleeson from the Star Wars movies is really mm. just Donald, Donald Gleeson. I thought it was Donald, oh. like Donald. I was told it was Donald without a D on the end. Oh, Donald, gosh. Oh, but, yeah, okay. <laughs> and he's one of my favorite movie stars. So it's, yeah, it's yeah. you know, and I yeah. can't pronounce his name. So. Nah, we, need, we need Max von Sydow here. Sido. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah, right. Yeah. Jack McGowan, who is an actor who is playing a director. Jesus, I cannot keep my head straight. Uh, This is director Burke Dennings, who, and I know I said this in the previous minute about Willie and Carl, but I think this is one of my favorite characters. Um, Now, Keenan, you know a little bit more about the actor Jack McGowan. Uh, Can you tell uh, tell us a little bit about him? Yeah, he's a really important theater actor. So, you know, a lot of that work I haven't seen because he was yeah. working in, you know, the 50s. Uh, um, he became one of the primarily uh, primary performers of Samuel Beckett's work. So ah. he was in Waiting for Gatto and uh, played Lucky, which is the best part. I don't know. you. Hmm. you did you do Gatto? Uh, did you ever do that? I, I've seen a production of it. Yes. Oh, I thought maybe you had played one of the ago. one of the main people. You should. You should play <laughs> Astro oh, Hawk okay. or, or one of them. But yeah, Lucky is my mm-hmm. favorite because Lucky is like this human um, horse. Um, he's a, he's a, it's a mime part basically. He doesn't have any lines. Oh. So yeah, he he um, he comes in and he uh, he acts like a horse and like fed things and <laughs> that kind of thing. <laughs> and uh, McGowan was also in um, Beckett's Endgame, and mm-hmm. then he released an LP of um, of him reading Beckett, so um, oh. or performing Beckett rather. So uh, so he had a record that was a hit that was going out and you know it was jack mcgowan reading beckett uh so he was associated with that and if, if you don't know beckett like um beckett is absurdist he is um uh, he has plays that you can read as being about nothing but being about everything right the existence of of uh of meaning in the universe real existentialist and um and so that's where mcgowan is primarily known for and then huh. in the movies, he's in a bunch of movies, um, usually playing Irish people in the beginning, like in John mm-hmm. Ford's The Quiet Man, which is set mm-hmm. in Ireland, but then also is in um, 
Dr. Zhivago. Uh, he has a really cool role in Roman Polanski's Cul-de-Sac, which oh. is this uh, really mean uh, thriller that is Beckett-like. Um, that's sort of on an island that, uh, depending on what time of day you're on, um, the tides are coming in or the tides are coming out. And it's a home invasion thriller. And the gangsters come in and um, terrorize this couple. And they can't leave because the tide is up. And uh, and McGowan's character is a gangster who is uh, wounded. And he's in this. <laughs> it's really mean. Well, I'm laughing because it's so awful. But he's, uh, <laughs> he's a gangster who's been wounded. And they can't move him out of the car, and the car uh-huh. gets stuck in the tide. And oh. so he's just back there, and then you cut back to him every once in a while, and the tide is getting higher and higher on oh, his face. No. He's like, oh. <laughs> oh. <laughs> but that's the kind of thing that he liked. And this, The Exorcist is actually his last film. So he, oh. he died um, soon after that while he was working on a play in New York, and he had this London um, flu epidemic that, that took him out. Before right, the movie yeah. opened, too, right? Yeah. Oh, is that? Oh, I didn't. I didn't know the timeline of that, but that—that's pretty. That's oh, unfortunate. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. He was in. Uh, you know, going back to our Shakespeare conversation in the mm-hmm. last episode, mm-hmm. he played the fool in King Lear right. uh, oh. that Peter Brook directed, which is my uh, very difficult one to find. But it was—it's mm. my favorite version of that. Yeah, story. I haven't seen that. One. That's Schofield. Paul Schofield. As, yeah, um, yeah. Really fantastic. Yeah. Oh, well, look at that. It's all coming back. Wow. <laughs> that is our Shakespeare I, oh, no. trap for the day. It is. That is our Shakespeare trap. Well, uh, just to just to linger here a little longer. So Schofield in Lear, that specific movie is mentioned by Carl in the book <laughs> um, when uh, what's his name? Um, uh, uh, not Columbo. Peter Falk. Uh, Peter Falk. Yeah. Uh, um, uh, no, 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 no. Um, Kin- Kinderman. <laughs> Lieutenant Kinderman. 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 There we go. <laughs> <laughs> like Peter Falk. <laughs> oh, my God. Oh, what a trip. Okay. Uh, no, no, no. When, when, when Kinderman is questioning him, mm-hmm. um, he's like, where did you go? And he says, I went to see Paul Schofield in Lear. And oh. I was just like, is, was, was Blatty on a, on a King Lear kick? He names this girl Reagan. He make a goneril joke. And now Carl is going to see movies and he's seeing Paul Schofield in uh, Lear. You know, did we huh. talk about the Carmen coincidence on the show? Oh, yeah. You we were talking about it. Were we, yes. on the, were we on the air? I can't remember if I'm going to bore the I think the it was. I'm, I, I'm bringing it up. No, no, no. Uh, I, I, brought, I bring it up actually in my notes in uh, the next minute, I believe. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yeah, because that, that – so this is this is from Roger Ebert's little mini movie glossary. Mm-hmm. And he talks about um, – you know, he has all these really interesting little just, just sort of snarky ideas. Like there's the um, Kevin Klein mustache rule. If Kevin Klein is wearing a mustache, it's a comedy. If he's shaven, it's <laughs> it's a drama. Um <laughs> The Gandhi movie, which is the movie that you can like and maybe even love and consider it a masterpiece, but you only have to see once is a Gandhi movie. Oh, that's funny. Um, and he says the Carmen coincidence. So like whenever a character is watching a movie or watching an opera, say Carmen, mm-hmm. that the movie, the, the opera they're watching is relevant to the themes of the movie is because, oh. you know, just the nature of, of not wanting to have superfluous, you know, extraneous um, themes going around. They should watch right. something that's relevant to them. Um, ah. So, so I've, I've been having trouble as we're getting ready for this. Like, oh, what is this movie that we're watching Chris starring in? Like, right. Like, is it, is it? Is it relevant? And again, we were having trouble with this with like, why would we name our character Reagan? It just feels right. like like such a, uh, you know, an odd name at the time. And now mm-hmm. I have friends who are named Reagan. It's not that right. strange. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, wow. Oh, my gosh. Thank you, Keenan. Um, so, OK, uh, back to back to Jack. Um, <laughs> so I'm really curious as to how much of Burke Denning's character is influenced by Laddie from the book or by Friedkin, the director, or by Jack himself. Like, I wonder if Friedkin is directing this director and thinking, okay, what would a director do? Should I have him play it like mm-hmm. 
Like, okay, Mr. McGowan, in this scene, you're just a horrible human being and you treat everyone like garbage, especially <laughs> your actors, right? But no, that can't be because we see that Burke is very warm and affectionate towards Chris, his star. We see uh, Chris emerging from her trailer and she calls out to Burke. And I love this because Burke, who was already ignoring the producer, Blatty, uh, ignores him further when he turns to acknowledge Chris and Blatty, he's just trying so hard to get uh, him to listen. And Burke just walks away like he's not even there. But we are going to listen to Blatty because he does a wonderful job describing this character in his book. So here we go. A reading from the book of Blatty. Hey, Burke, take a look at this damn thing, will ya? Oh, you do have a script, I see. How nice. Director Burke Dennings, taut and elfin, left eye twitching yet gleaming with mischief, surgically shaved a narrow strip from a page of her script with quivering fingers. I believe I'll munch, he cackled. They were standing on the esplanade that fronted the administration building and were knotted in the center of actors, lights, technicians, extras, grips. Here and there, a few spectators dotted the lawn, mostly Jesuit faculty. Numbers of children, the cameraman, bored, picked up daily variety as Dennings put the paper in his mouth and giggled, his breath reeking faintly of the morning's first gin. Yes, I'm terribly glad you have been given a script. A sly, frail man in his fifties, he spoke with a charmingly broad British accent, so clipped and precise that it lofted even the crudest obscenities to elegance. And when he drank, he seemed always on the verge of guffaw, seemed constantly struggling to maintain his composure. Now then, tell me, my baby, what is it? What's wrong? The scene in question called for the dean of the mythical college in the script to address a gathering of students in an effort to squelch a threatened sit-in. Chris would then run up the steps on the esplanade, tear the bullhorn away from the dean, and then point to the main administration building and shout, let's tear it down. It just doesn't make any sense, said Chris. Well, it's perfectly plain, lied Dennings. Why the heck would they tear the building down, Burke? What for? Are you sending me up? No, I'm asking what for, because it's their loves. In the script? No, on the grounds. Well, it doesn't make sense, Burke. She just wouldn't do that. She would. No, she wouldn't. Shall we summon the writer? I believe he's in Paris. Hiding? Fucking. He'd clipped it off with impeccable diction, fox eyes glinting in a face like dough as the word rose crisp to gothic spires. Chris fell weak to his shoulders, laughing. Oh, Burke, you're impossible, damn it. Yes. He said it like Caesar, modestly confirming reports of his triple rejection of the crown. Oh. <laughs> I love that. I love that last line. That Caesar line. And here we get this exchange, which sort of subverts expectations again. Here, Chris is complaining about the scene in the script. Now, you would think a director like Burke would be annoyed or at the very least ignore her like he ignored the producer. But no, he gives her all his attention. In fact, he turns and notices her with such a look of, I don't know, relief, joy. He's so glad she's here, he, but not in a like, oh, thank God, my actor is here way. More like a like, oh, good, my friend is here way. Um, and even their argument is playful. Again, we could paint Chris as this diva complaining about the script and Burke as this harried director who is just trying to placate her. But no, we, we have this fun little argument where Chris is just trying to find the truth of the scene and Burke, like a good director and a good mentor, knows how to deal with her and is even able to break the tension with a joke. He gets everyone laughing and Chris embraces him and we see that these two are more than just uh, director and actor. They are uh, dear friends. That feels a lot more like what uh, the director-actor relationship is in a functional set, as opposed to, again, like how the movies portray the movies in the studio mm. system, where, you know, the typical scene is 
the uh, actor comes to set, they haven't read the script. The director mm-hmm. says, now, darling, this is the scene where you go up to the stairs and you have this man here and he's playing your husband. And mm-hmm. and, he's, and they're like, oh, yes. Oh, yes. I wouldn't have been able to figure this out on my own. <laughs> like I need <laughs> the director hand puppeting me to figure this out. Right? Yeah. Um, that's very, very typical. And so, you know, I, I, I teach a lot of um, film students and, and they mm-hmm. still have this sort of somewhere deep in their collective cultural memory that this is how directors work. The actors mm-hmm. are stupid. They have no opinions of their own. And, and the, um, the director gives them all to them as opposed mm. to this, which is like about a legitimate question of motivation. But why am I, why am I doing this? Um, I, I can't find in the script, uh, both, uh, <laughs> uh, both, um, Burke and Chris sort of don't like the script. We get that right. implication, yes. <laughs> which I guess, you know, makes sense when you're the author of a novel, but now mm. when you're the screenwriter to also have, you know, these, these yeah. uh, people complaining about the screenwriter, you know, right, that's interesting right. to me. <laughs> yeah, I wanted to speak to that about like like the. I wonder I wonder how um, how much uh, it hits home for Blatty to be playing this producer to this other actor who's playing a director who's not listening to him. Because <laughs> yeah. um, um, we and we're we're gonna uh, talk a, a little bit more about that about um, Friedkin and Blatty's disagreements um, uh, as the as the film goes on and as we see those minutes uh, specifically. Well, it's. I, I think what I, I find so interesting about the relationship that we have with these characters is they're, again, just like there is such a performative nature to everything that we're seeing here. It's like, mm. this isn't a studio picture. We are on a campus watching these two doing a scene that involves a huge crowd of people that are actors playing these these students. But also, I mean, we see that they've got the barricades up. There are a bunch of onlookers here who are also watching. And we see a number yes. of, of the people mm-hmm. watching obviously close enough to be listening in on all of these conversations. So I think it is, I I think there's this very performative nature also to the way that these two are playing it. And I think there's a serious nature to her questions, albeit in my head, I'm always like, these are the sorts of questions that hopefully they would have already had discussions about, not like the moment right right before she's walking on to perform it. But you know, all that aside, it is this, this, this sense of these two kind of, and maybe, I mean, who knows, maybe there is this sense of this is something else that often you have with actors and directors where, they build up kind of a way to kind of get themselves psyched up and ready. And maybe this is part of her, the way that as an actress that she is, you know, performing and she needs to kind of have these questions spinning around in her head so that she's ready to jump into the role. And, and, you know, it already is kind of like spinning about thinking about these elements. Right. On a lot of you know, functional, again, functional relationships with actors and directors, oftentimes um, an actor will spend the first rehearsal or the first couple of actually film takes, like making sure the director is seeing them, like actually seeing them as opposed to just, you know, oh, did, did she say the lines correctly and then moving on? Right. Um, so, you know, when it's dysfunctional, then we get a lot of great, you know, Hollywood anecdotes about, say, Marlon Brando again. Uh, <laughs> you know, you say um, he's, he, he used to say that when he was trying out a new director, he would give them one take where he was uh, um, giving it his all in one take where he was phoning it in. And then depending on which one the director printed, that is which one he chose, um, then he would know how to spend the rest of his energy. Like, is this worth my time to actually yeah. wow. give it all out here? Um, but in a functional relationship, right. I think, I think Andy's exactly right. Like you like, there is, um, there's a lot of ramp up and there's a lot of nervous energy on a movie set. Um, and we don't have, I guess, an indication about, is this the first day that we're shooting here on location in Georgetown or not? Um, so like even just getting used to, you know, a company move across the country. Yeah. 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 I mean, it's not the first take. I mean, as we right. see when we see the slate, it's the, you know, they've it's already H. done this. Yeah. A number mm-hmm. of times. Uh, well, it's 37H take four, right? Is mm-hmm, that what it was? Right. Yeah. So, yeah. So I mean, they've, they've been at it for a little while. Again, we don't know if it's the first, it's the start of the day or where, but still, right. I mean, it is, 
there's a lot of stuff going on here and, and yeah, trying yeah, to keep sir. as an actress trying to keep especially when you're in a scene where you're performing at the head of a group of people you know like mm-hmm. like she really has to kind of build up that internal energy to run in there and do what she needs to do yeah, yeah. Um, and it's also tricky right when you're playing a character who is nervous like <laughs> so now as an actor you have all of that mixed in like yes I, I need to be I need to get rid of my own nerves in order to perform the scene but then put on the character's nerves um, that's not that's not quite how it works but you know find the character's nerves from the inside and, and work outward or however you want to put it yeah. right um, and then yeah just just pointing that out, like Andy was saying so this would be um, H hotel they say when they're um, running the slate so that would be whatever number of the alphabet h is a b c d so the eighth the uh no the ninth um setup of the day actually yeah uh the or at least of the scene rather of the scene yeah of scene right. 37 right. right the um where, where do you two stand on the way you read the relationship between uh burke and chris outside of this i mean obviously it's Ooh. way beyond my minutes but mm-hmm. there is that conversation later that she has with reagan yes. about you know what she's getting out of kind of the gossip magazines that she's reading <laughs> about perhaps there might be a little more going on between these two and i wonder if there's an element at least the way that uh the actors are playing it here that mm-hmm. uh, you know if we're meant to read that there's anything more going on there yeah Keenan, Keenan, you go first on this. Oh, I wanted you to go first. <laughs> <laughs> um, go first. Well, I mean, again, I'm going to sound like a broken record, but mm-hmm. um, yeah, there is there is a little bit more of that uh, in the book, um, and it is it is completely uh, platonic. It is it, almost like parental. He is he is like a mentor to her. Um, we're going to find out that she gets uh, offered a. A, uh, an opportunity to direct her own film. And she's really excited about that. And she goes to him as this uh, uh, kind of mentor and says, Oh, you know, Burke, I don't know what I'm going to do. Uh, like, I, I don't know if I have it in me. And he talks her up and he, he kind of plays the, uh, the, you know, the, the Yoda to uh, her Luke, I guess. Um, and just, you know, just kind of like uh, assuring her, it's like, no, you, you can definitely do it. I know you, I've worked with you. I see you. Uh, not only are we friends, but I, I know how good you are at what you do. Hmm. Um, and the counterpoint to that is that Burke is this kind of just sad, lonely guy. He's an alcoholic as well. And he is very, very abrasive with other people. Um, he angers everybody, um, that he comes into contact with. We see that in Carl, but like he, he also just kind of like pisses off everybody, um, on, on set, but he does this in a way Chris recognizes that he's kind of like, playing a part like he's living up to his legend as as blatty puts Mm it um because people know him he's the notorious kind of like director who flies off the handle whenever he's had like one or two drinks Mm -hmm. and but he makes these amazing films so everybody just kind of like takes that as part and parcel of 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 the great burke dennings um and uh, but like when he's alone with chris he's kind of you know um a different person he's in his cups he's he's uh drunk but he is um He's, he's a little bit more reflective and introspective. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, but like he spends a lot of time with Chris because he's lonely and uh, he, he can't make uh, close friends because of his abrasiveness. And Chris, so Chris is the only one that he can kind of confide in. And so I think Reagan picks that up and it's like, hey, you know, Burke's hanging around here a lot. And, yeah. you know, are you going to, you know, like we're going to see, like she, she's worried that, um, you know, Chris is going to, going to marry him. Um, 
Yeah. Um, that's really interesting, the thought that Chris McNeil would get to direct a film because so few women were directing films in Hollywood at the time. I mean, really, it is Elaine May, who is the um, the sketch and writing partner of Mike Nichols, who's directing films in Hollywood. And that is about it. And I don't mean to be reductive, but that's about it, unless Andy can think of anybody else, uh, you know, in 1971, when William Bla- uh, Peter Bly is writing this this book. So that was yeah, I mean, quite a statement. Yeah. yeah, I mean, obviously, there was like Dorothy Arzner before that. But I mean, right. that was back in the 30s, 40s. So obviously, a little a little earlier. So it's, yeah, it is Hollywood few and far like, between. Yeah, yeah, gave like one woman at a time a chance. Yeah. So it was like Lois Weber, and then um, Dorothy Arzner, and then I Lupino. And then, you know, they would take yeah, turns. It's like, like one at a time, and, ladies. Yeah, exactly. One <laughs> at a time. Yeah, so that's really interesting there. But you know, what I... Um, what I have always read Burke as, I think even when I was seeing this as a teenager and not quite fully aware of my my queerness, is that Burke is gay. I mean, so the, the only way yeah, I've ever been able to read the film uh, is is that he's he's uh, Chris's gay best friend. That's uh, yeah, and I, I kind of read it that way too, which is mm-hmm. which is interesting because I, I think there's I, I think I, I don't know if this would end up being kind of uh, a stereotype of reading it, but there is a stronger connection that he has between. Uh, or the the way the characters are between Burke and Chris, because right. you know mm. he's he's you know has a more open and honest relationship with her because of that, and you know they're not trying to get into a relationship or anything. Right. Um. Yeah. He 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 dresses stylishly, if not um, a little outdated, because he's a little bit older than them. But he um you know he doesn't dress like Billy Friedkin, who wears like a leather jacket and stuff like that. Right. He he dresses a little bit outdatedly, a little bit but stylishly. He's got like um velvet uh, his coat is like velvet in this scene um and he's a little just a little fey and he's a little quippy and he um you know these are the kind of things that we would do in uh in hollywood when we were trying to encode a character as being queer so we had coded queer cinema where yeah. it, you know it, it, it deals with stereotypes so a lot of my students today tend not to like this kind of talk it's like oh you know not not all gay people are like this not all um, lesbians are like this but but that's how you would communicate to an audience that they were gay is but dealing with stereotypes without when you weren't able to say things dialogue wise. Right. So and especially you know, you, a movie in, in the early seventies. Like, yeah. You know. So you couldn't, you couldn't do like today, you know, you can have a, a, a queer show like love, love, um, love Victor or something like that. And then you can have three or four different gay boys and they're, they're all a little bit different. Right. So that, that you don't have to deal with stereotypes as much, but, but in a movie uh, of the old days, you'd have one character and you needed to communicate it. So you would deal with stereotypes. You didn't have the opportunity to say like, Oh, he's so he's not what I would think of as a gay man. Right. That, or he's not what I would think of as a lesbian um and we'll talk about mercedes mccambridge early on or later on but but she was someone who routinely played coded queer lesbian characters well there's you know i think even in the context of that and this might be you know far too meta thinking about some of the elements in the film but in the nature of a film that deals with such ritualistic ritualistic aspects as we do in this film dealing with the actual rite of the exorcism and the way you go through that when you look at like in the scope of what these two are doing in their jobs their rituals. I was ta- I mentioned that earlier. How you know they both have a, a ritual on the film set as to how things are done. Her rituals as an actress, getting herself you know amped up and ready to jump into the scene. We've got you know the rituals of the hair, makeup, and wardrobe people right before she runs out there that they're doing their last looks and the way that all of those little rituals take place. And then you know on the meta side of it, like the rituals of making a coded character in films in 1973 and the way that. The, the the director and the writer would kind of craft those characters and that the actor would perform it it's it's like there's so much ritual going on in in the process of putting a film like this together it's mm-hmm. oh. really interesting inside and out oh man i really like that that is cool thank you guys um so 
Now, right before we cut away, uh, you can see her as she's hugging Burke. She looks up at someone in the crowd and we see that it's a priest. Now, is this another actor? Is this uh, the priest that, you know, the AD was shouting about? Is like, I need a, a priest, a nun and two students. Or is it a real priest? Georgetown University is a Jesuit school. So there are real priests running around. We don't know yet. We don't really meet this character just yet. So like Reagan in the previous minute, we're going to hold off on introducing him for now. Because now the lights are focused. The camera is rolling. Our AD has called action. We have three men huddling around Chris as she gets ready. I, I assume this is like a, a touch-up crew, wardrobe, hair, and makeup, that sort mm-hmm. of thing. Yeah. Um, I'm looking now, and on closer inspection, I'm, I'm going to guess that, uh, yeah, the guy on the far left is makeup. We see him doing like a little touch-up. He also has a, a, a brush mm-hmm. in his mouth. Um, the middle guy, I'm not sure. He's, but, uh, he's the guy, hair. Yeah, he's got a hair. little a little comb that you'll see him uh, Ah, there we go. Away. Okay, <laughs> so the middle guy is hair. And the guy on the right is definitely wardrobe, not only because he's looking at her her clothes, but also because he is wearing literally everything. Um, <laughs> he's he's got a hat, he's got a scarf, he's got this uh, flowy black top uh, and what looks like a, a pearl bla- bracelet. So mm-hmm. yeah, he is he is wardrobe for sure. I was trying um, so hard to find like if because they're not credited, and I was looking. I'm like, is this the actual like uh, hair makeup wardrobe team? from the oh, film yeah. like is this a great question, is joseph yeah. fretwell the third the <laughs> costume designer is that him right. <laughs> doing the touch-ups on the wardrobe and you know is it dick smith is it william yeah. farley I, I couldn't tell because i couldn't find any pictures of them in the yeah, I, uh, early 70s to really be able to compare them so but that is something that's that ran smith, my yeah head. that's a good question yeah mm, yeah, yeah. And, and so she's also like talking about right psyching yourself up right she's also right. uh getting ready she's mentally preparing for the scene and the guy in the back um you you, you guys said uh, it's hair right mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Um, he takes something out of his jean jacket from the pocket and he offers it to her. I couldn't make out what it was. Did you guys catch that? It looks like a little red case of something like maybe gum or cigarettes or something like that. It also kind of looks like a a touch up sponge. I don't know, but he offers it to her and she kind of like brushes it away in this kind of like distracted, almost, um, annoyed gesture. And Again, we might be tempted to think, oh, God, what a diva treating these people like that. But, Keenan, as a director yourself, having worked with actors yourself and having worked as both an actor and a director, I'm curious what you made of this little this little gesture uh, because it happens so quickly. And I think our mind m- could catch it and think that she's being like mean or ungrateful here. Yeah, I don't read it that way. I, I know why some people would. But, yeah, oftentimes an actor is um, is in their headspace and they're they're performing usually before. I mean, this is the kind of modern actors that would come up after Brando in the 50s that um it's often sort of shorthanded as the method actors, they would perform before they wouldn't, um, you know, just be able to turn it on and off on a dime, like some of the other actors like Olivier had been trained to do before. Right. Um, so, so yeah, I don't think that it's necessarily rude at all. And we see that sort of in the reactions of the, um, the crew people, like they they understand it. They don't go, Oh my God, what a terrible thing that she's done here. And not saying thank you. My problem on my first feature as an actor is that I had to um, turn off my uh, the politeness that had been ingrained in me by my uh, Asian parents, you know? <laughs> um, <laughs> oh, I don't know. I was on a game show um, and it had, it had to be pointed out to me by my boyfriend afterwards when he said, you know, you always said, please, can I have this category for this amount, please? Every single time that so I didn't know I was doing that. <laughs> it's just ingrained <laughs> in me. Um, but yeah, as an actor, I had to 
um, just understand that like the, the, the milliseconds or the, you know, let's say seconds it would take me to say like, oh, thank you so much. Like I would normally do was actually eating into my, my time getting ready for the take. Right, right. You'd, you'd sort of have to take that, that, um, preparation that you've been building and putting on so carefully, you'd have to like take it off like a, like a, like a coat just yes. to thank somebody. And then now you got to button it all back up again. Yeah. I right? wish I was the kind of actor who could switch back and forth. I really do think about that, but I, I just had to accept that that's not the kind of actor I am. And then, yeah. I, you know, and it it really does pain me to be what I would think of as brusque or something. The, the crew, of course, when they're used to this, they, they don't see it as brusque at all. But right. yeah, you just see my grandparents thinking about me. Yeah. <laughs> like, what, how rude of him. Yeah. When you're in there for last looks, I mean, that's usually like everything is like at a very heightened moment. And oftentimes, like, you know, I mean, you'll have people say, we don't have time for last looks and just get going. And you right. just have to, like, you know, bail on whatever it is you're about to touch up and say, well, all right, like they're going to go for it anyway. And this is a take that's already started. Like the actors are already going and everything. And so they're, they're kind of doing the last moments of the last looks and shows. So she's already kind of in the space of getting herself into the role. And so it makes sense for her to kind of brush them away because they're pulling her out of her performance. Mm -hmm. Right. Right. Yeah. No, she is, she is in the middle of it already. Um, as an actor myself, I'm, I'm so afraid of coming off like this, like on right. set, I can imagine uh, a scenario where I would, uh, you know, just let them keep fussing over me and just try to work around it. But it is something to keep in mind when an actor is preparing, some of them can work around it. And like you said, Keenan, and some of them need you to respectfully back off when they are doing their work. And we see that Chris is in this scene, even as she is walking to her mark, she is mentally preparing. And the other guy, the, the, the makeup guy, he mm-hmm. comes back for one more little fuss um right before this you can see he she is mouthing her lines she is a hundred percent focused and this guy comes in to touch up her makeup and she reacts reacts again because her concentration has been broken this poor lady is just Mm -hmm. trying to prepare for her scene and it is here that our minute ends right before our ad calls action on chris uh gentlemen is there anything else you want to add to this minute yeah actually uh, just to point out in the screenplay which again is written by blatty about his alma mater that he calls out what building he would like this to be filmed at so he says <laughs> um, exterior campus of georgetown university day a film is being shot in front of steps of healy building so he he is like oh this is the building i want um and uh i've seen that a couple of times in um say jj abrams pilot for alias which we use in acting class here um he'll, he'll call out the ackerman union at ucla i'm like oh i know what that is i mean because that's the student union where i went to school i mean does anybody care jj <laughs> abrams when you're doing this yeah and then at the um you know, I haven't told you this, Andy, but I, I'm afraid of reading The Exorcist, the book. I've only read one chapter and I need to sort of catch up. But in the author's note in the back, he's, he sort of apologizes, Blatty does. He says, I've taken a few liberties with the current geography of Georgetown University, yada, yada, yada. <laughs> like, like, I'm so sorry that it's not exactly how it actually is. That's so funny. <laughs> So Georgetown funny. University students are just like, wait, wait a minute. A minute. Um, <laughs> and, uh, you know, the... Um, the this is coming off the heels of a big movie in the 1970 called Love Story, yeah. which is set primarily in Harvard and Radcliffe. And the filmmakers of Love Story um, ruined uh, like landscaping at Harvard and damaged uh, you know hundred year old buildings, and so they have now a um, a uh, just a, a rote like no no movies are ever going to be able to uh, film at Harvard ever ever again. Um, and so like when we have later on the Social Network needing to film at Harvard, they're shooting that at. USC primarily and, and a little bit of UCLA. So, so yeah, so this is, um, this is really Georgetown as far as I've been able to see. Do you know if it's really Healy Hall? <laughs> I don't know if it's really Healy Hall. That's a, that's a great question. Yeah. <laughs> 
Um, and yes, so so folks, um, if we haven't mentioned it before, so uh, Vladi went to school here. So he was a student at Georgetown University. And actually, this is where he uh, heard about the real story of, um, I guess, his his uh, pseudonym is Roland Doe or right. Robbie Doe, the, the, the real boy who is uh, you know, supposedly uh, uh, possessed by the devil. Um, and that's where he got his idea to write this uh, write this book. Um, I wonder how Blatty feels like coming back to campus, right? As famous author, William Peter Blatty, as screenwriter, William Peter Blatty, producer, you know, and he's, he's walking the <laughs> steps and everything like that. Um, I'm curious to, to, as to how he, how he felt on that day. Yeah, no kidding. I, I am looking, I did just a quick Google search on Georgetown mm-hmm. University's website. It does say one of the places they filmed at. It doesn't say specifically this scene, but it does have Healy mm-hmm. Hall listed as one of the sites. Oh, so. that must uh-huh. be it. There we go. Well, there he got his go. way. Yeah. That's yeah. right. That's right. Love it. All right. So, gentlemen, that is our minute. Do we have anything else that we want to add? No, I think we got it, Lester. Lots of stuff going on. Good minute. All right. Uh, so, Keenan, are you thinking what I'm thinking? I think I am, Lester. All right. And Andy, are you thinking what we're thinking? Indeed, I am. All right. So, folks, until next time, the, the power, power of Healy Hall, Hall compels. compels.